It's our Mega Auction Strategy Podcast, plus some potentially undervalued high-priced outfielders. FSWA award winner Derek Van Riper of The Athletic joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always, Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. A little bit more snow here in uh, New York, but pitchers and catchers are upon us. What's going on? It's great to see them having catch on the side right now, and it was very interesting also. MLB Network listed the top 100 current players, and to see Jacob deGrom number three, does that play into fantasy at all? Do you think he's number three overall to be picked in drafts? Oh, that's debatable. Uh, definitely uh, the deeper the leagues you are, De- DeGrum differentiates himself amongst all the starting pitchers. So tilt towards him. I don't know if I would pick him three, but four, five, six, somewhere like that. But we're going to talk a little bit about uh, more auction and draft stuff today. We've got a wonderful guest, Baseball Podcast of the Year winner, on his Rates and Barrels program. He also does the Athletic Fantasy Podcast. From the Athletic, please welcome Derek Van Riper. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well, gentlemen. How are you? Doing wonderful. Thanks for coming on the show tonight. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Very welcome. So uh, we jump into it right away on our show here. In in our strategy section tonight, it's all about auctions and uh, something that Ruven and I do very well. And I've noticed from being in on a couple of your uh, auctions, I don't know if you have watched me sit in the corner in a couple of your live labor and tout wars auctions, but I've noticed that you're one of the better performers. Um, it's You have the right strategy. You know how to play the inflation game. You know how to play the room. Um, and I just thought you'd be a fantastic guest to talk about all the different parts of making a plan, how to nominate, how to execute, uh, and all that uh, auction strategy. So, uh here we are. Um, the first question, just I'm going to throw out to you here, is, uh, you know, do you prefer playing in auctions, or do you like snake drafts, and, and why? I do prefer auctions to snake drafts. I've had more success in auctions. If you look back at the different leagues I've played in over the years, uh, I have more league wins in tout wars and labor uh, and even non-industry auctions than I do in straight snake drafts. I think the, the NFBC formats, I mean, I've played the 12-teamer and the 15-teamer over the years, and I have not won an outright title in an NFBC snake draft yet. Like, that is really frustrating to not come in first in one of those leagues. Uh, But I think the big difference for me is with an auction, I just feel like there are more paths to build the type of roster that I want. And you still have to be flexible. You still have to be able to adapt to what's happening in the room uh, it's interesting that you, you mentioned you've been in the room for some of the auctions that I've been in. I mean, I know you've been at those events, and I've probably spoken to you. I know like at Tout Wars before I've said hi to you or something before the auction. Once the auction starts, I I wouldn't know if anyone's in the room or not. Like, I, I've, I've completely blocked out the secondary factors in the room. Uh, it's just you know noise, whatever it might be, people coming and going. Uh, it, it's it's a blur at that point, right? I'm just so focused on what's happening in front of me. But yeah, the big difference for me, I like having more paths to get the players that I want and auctions offer that up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for you, how does preparation differ between when you prepare for what what you do for a snake draft versus the auction? I think with the, 
the auctions, I'm taking more time once I have my projected values. I'm actually building rosters around the different cores that I'm fairly confident I can end up with. And, you know, if you're prepared for an auction, I think you're prepared for some aspects of a snake draft, but a snake draft is more of a decision tree series of adjustments, right? You have to keep pivoting based on how the board falls to you. And I don't think you have to make those pivots as quickly in an auction. So I think you could sit down and say, I'm going to spend 30 bucks on at least one starter. And I'm going to spend at least 40 bucks on two hitters. And you can sit back and identify who those players are. And you're, you just know you're going to get some combination of two $40 hitters and three pitchers or one $30 pitcher, barring something really unexpected in the room. It's possible you get pushed out on the players that you really want and you'll have to make an adjustment. But you, you go in with a certain amount of confidence that with an extra buck or two here and there, you're going to get a foundation that looks sort of like this. And I, I just take all the different concepts I want to build on and put them together. And I look for different ways that that impacts the rest of the roster. And I want to know, like, where are their dead spots, categorically speaking or positionally speaking? And that's going to vary, of course, depending on the type of league. If we're talking about a 12-team mixed league, you know, things don't run out quite as much. If we're talking about 12-team NL-only auctions, it's going to be a lot different. There's going to be a lot more scarcity that you want to account for, and there are going to be some builds that are less ideal than others. So you're at least going to go through the process of trying to identify a few holes that you don't want to fall in. And I think that's the that's the key difference for me. Is like I, I think I can have a better feel for the problems I might encounter going into an auction. I think a lot of that comes, again, from the flexibility of how you can take so many different paths to get a roster that, that fits the mold that you want. Those are great points. Ruvain, uh, anything to add? How, how do you uh, do snakes versus auction? Uh, what differs? Well, basically, when you do when you prepare for an auction, you're preparing the dollar values for each player. So when you're preparing for an auction, you're actually already preparing for the snake, for, for a, a regular type of, of, of snake draft. Because if you have the prices, you know where you want to take each person. And when you prepare for a snake, if you have that list next to what the current quote unquote ADP is for that for, for that time and for that and for the league, whether it's an NL only, L only or mixed, then you know where you want to go with the players. You know where you'll be able to pick which players you want when it comes to the to the uh, to a regular draft or an auction. You can have anyone you want. If you're the number eight pick in a in a, in a snake draft, you're not going to get. Uh, Acuna, you're not going to get Tatis or anything or those high guys. But when you're in an auction, you can prepare and you can get your roster ready for any type of thing because you can spend and buy and get whoever you want. And that's the that's why I like auctions. And that's why we like auctions because you can actually mold your team any way you want. But as opposed to a snake draft, it's so much harder to get what you want because you don't know how everyone else is going to play. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with both of your a uh, lot of your points uh, uh, for both of you. Um, for me, the difference between a snake and an auction is a snake. I plan backwards. I take a look and see what is available in more abundance at the end of the drafts and what rounds I might be able to get certain quantities of stats or certain positions and then I go to the middle rounds and what do I think I'm going to get in these middle rounds and what positions and what what is cheap here and you build your roster backwards in terms of the thought process like, like the decision tree for me it doesn't go forwards it goes backwards uh, and then you see okay if I think I'm going to get this later 
what do I want to build in the front of the auction, in the front of the draft? Of course, you have to realize, as Ruvain said, you know, you're not going to get Acuna if you're picking number 10, but you have to, you'll have an idea of what you're roughly going to get. Do you need a pitcher? Do you need an outfielder? Do you need some stolen bases earlier on? And you'll do that by knowing what comes later. For an auction, it to me, it's about building what we call on the show the hot spots. What quantities and what positions are available for bargains at what price points? We see maybe there are a couple of, there are four second basemen at the $5 price point that we think are bargains. We'll get one of those. So just as DVR said, you know, put down a five. I think I'm going to get a $5 second baseman. Uh, looks like there are three outfielders at the $25 mark that I think I want one of that are bargains or something I need in terms of uh, statistics. Then that's a hot spot, right down 25 outfielder. I think I'm going to get one of these three. Uh, th- that's, to me, the, the difference between the two. Any- anything I miss, uh, Derek? No, I mean, I think that's a very similar process to what I like to do. And there's there's still some movement within that, but it's just having some really good guidelines of how you want to allocate those resources. I think it it, it makes your decision-making on the fly go more smoothly. Right. So that's the general the general circumstances of how to build, but let's talk a little bit more about the specifics in terms of dollar amounts and and how you construct things. And by the way, even if you're doing we're going to talk about auctions today, but even if you're doing the snake draft, I highly recommend you do the auction values because you want to see not just a ranking of players, but the tiers in players. Where is there a drop? I have a fifteen dollar first baseman, a fourteen dollar first baseman, and then it drops to a nine dollar. Well, you want to get that tier before it runs out. You want to get the 15 or $14. You don't want to wait till the nine. So you might want to attack that position first, right? You, you, the, the tiers are important. So the auction dollars are still important. Uh, but in terms of just raw values, um, you know, you have to make a bid. You have to have some basis of bidding. What method do you personally use, Derek, in constructing your own auction values? So I was lucky to be at Rotowire for 13 years. And I think we had downloadable draft software for about 10 of those years. And once I started using the draft software, it made everything so easy to manage on draft day. Uh, the Rotowire software comes with their projections. Jeff Erickson does that set. And I would say those numbers to me are pretty close to three-year averages, but you know they're not obviously in lockstep with that. But what I would do is I would go through, I would run the settings for the auction I was going to do in advance. I would sit down, I'd start highlighting players, making my own tiers, and I would compare the projections we had at Rotowire and the values generated by the software to the values generated by the auction calculator over at Fangraphs, right? As soon as you could have ATC and the bat and steamer and zips, you could take all those projections, run them through, and just get a feel for where the systems were different. And the time I would spend doing that, I mean, the countless hours I've spent over the years looking at different sets of projections and kind of deciding where I was going to move off of the baseline values in front of me, I actually don't want to know how much time that's been. It's It'd be yeah. kind of a, an embarrassing sort of total, right? Uh, so that's where I go just to get my, my core values. But I also think over time, I've become a lot more relaxed about spending a little more when I need to. I, I think when I first started playing at auctions, I probably had... I mean, maybe most famously, this is like the Larry Schechter book model of you know, rounding things to a fraction of a cent and not going above those numbers. I probably started a little closer to that. 
And now I'm, I'm not the opposite end of the spectrum, but I'm definitely a lot more laid back with how I use auction dollars because I think there are a lot of factors, a lot of variables that come into play that force you to move off your values, even if you don't necessarily want to. And I think, I think the way you play might be more like the way Larry plays. I think you, Ariel, I think you are a little more connected to your values. I think you make adjustments that are a little more calculated than mine. I think mine are almost more of a gut feel on the fly sort of modification to the numbers in front of me. Yeah. Um, no, Ruben and I are, are more, I'm not going to say we're strict auction drafters, but we're stricter. There, there's, you know, there's two real modifications is, number one, um, I take, uh, well, I have my own au- personal auction calculator that works with Z-scores, um, but I make risk-adjusted calculations. So uh, I recently put out an article on Fangraphs about uh, the interprojection risk. You know, it's funny, Derek, you mentioned how, you know, you took the rotowire projections and you looked at all the different systems on fan graphs and you were taking them and you are seeing the differences between projections. Well, it's sort of what I do with, with the ATC because ATC looks at other projections as well, but now I get the sense of volatility around them. So I'm getting a volatility number of how far apart projections are and a skewness of projections as to, hey, are there more projections above the ATC average or are there more projections below the ATC average? And between the volatility number and the skewness number, I get a very good shape, a very good sense of the shape of where projections lie up and around ATC. Um, that's interesting. Uh, but anyways, uh, in terms of calculation, I'm going to, with a formula that I have, I'm calculating off of it. If there's a variable player that's worth $20, I'm going to deduct I'm going to say, no, I don't want to pay $20. I only want to pay 18 because I need a little bit more profit to account for his risk. Maybe it's about a two do- at the $20 mark, it's about an expected $2 decline with the variability. I need an extra $2 of profit, whereas some players who are so stable, like Mike Trout is a very stable player, um, if his auction price that I get is $45, i am willing to go $2 more because of the stability. I don't need to make as much profit because his returns are less variable. The other modification we make that we devoted a whole episode to with uh, Tristan Cockroft is called market premium. Um, you know, uh, values are a relative, uh, really a relative number. Um, if, if, if you see that, according to your values, every single ace starting pitcher is $4 over your value, you're not going to, if you are a strict value guy, you're not going to get a single pitcher. If you make an adjustment on the fly and say, you know what, it's every pitcher is going $4 above or on average $4, there is a market premium of $4. So I'm going to adjust my values on the fly right away in a projection, right away in an auction and say, add five. Now, I don't want to buy a pitcher for five, but if a pitcher goes only $2 over my value, that is to me a bargain. Because the market's paying four above my values, I want a two dollar player above my value. So, so I'm not. I am a strict, uh, a strict drafter in terms of the rules, but I'm not hard on the first dollar numbers that come out. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think it. it I think you outlined the process similar to what I suspected. I think you have very well rationed reasoning for making the adjustments you're making, and I think. You're probably making them more precisely than I am, but we're trying to make the same adjustments based on basically the exact same factors. Right, right, right. Ruvain, anything to add on 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 strictness of following values and all that? 
yes, it helps a lot to have a second person on the team like myself because <laughs> you always want to pay the extra dollar more, and I'm always holding you back because if you pay the extra dollar more on a whole bunch of different players, you're you're not going to end up with the with the total amount of value that you're going to want. You have to listen during a draft. Things happen, and prices sometimes are getting bidding wars, and it gets very very heated out there. You can't get caught up in that. You have to still stick to the numbers. And sometimes if you're doing it solo, you know what? You get caught up in it. Then all of a sudden you end up with a player or you're overpaying by five, six, seven dollars when you wanted to overpay maybe two or three, and it screws you the rest of the draft. So having a teammate, having someone there also keeping track of this stuff, keeping track of your budget, keeping track of the rest of the market, keeping track of what other teams need, that helps immensely. Oh, totally. Um, now here's a question that I often get very, very, very much is in an auction, what do you set as the hitter versus pitcher split? You know, a lot of used to be 70, 30. Um, some people say go two thirds, one thirds. If you look at the NFBC, it's a lot closer to uh, 62, 38, something like that. Do you have an answer as to what you do and what you set up Derek? Yeah, I think I have probably been as aggressive, I'll say, as 60-40. I think 62-38 or 63-37 is probably where I usually end up now. That probably is the result of looking at a lot of NFBC results, playing with more NFBC-minded people, uh, thinking about how people as a group are just chasing pitching differently, right? I mean, I think all of those, all of those factors probably explain that shift. I definitely started with 70-30 a few years ago, and it was almost just what the more experienced players were doing, so I just followed suit. Oh, okay. Jeff is doing this. Liz is doing this. This is what these guys are doing. I'm going to follow them because they've they've helped teach me how to play, right? And I think as I've gone through this process more and more on my own and had to adapt to different rooms, I've realized, you know, this, the split matters, but it's one of those things that I also, I wouldn't want to be too strict about it. I think the type of room you're in is going to significantly alter what that split looks like. I think it's significant anyway. I think the difference between 60-40 and 70-30 is actually a pretty big one. Uh, but I think it really depends on what does the pool look like in a particular year and how is the room of people you're playing against, how are they valuing that group of players? Yeah, so my answer to that, it's 100% you should be putting values, if you can, almost exactly to what the market's going to do. It's what the room is going to do. If you're playing in an NFBC draft and NFBC is going 62-38, your, pre, your pre-draft values, the ones that you set up before anything, should be that. The idea is that you want to have the propensity to buy a hitter just as great as the propensity to buy a pitcher. You want to look at bargains on your side and have an equal amount of bargains on both the pitching and hitter side. Just to give you the exaggerated case, let's say for some reason the other 14 guys in your draft all get together and they're like, we're going to pound hitting. We're just going to go 80-20. And they come up with a split and they spend almost nothing on pitching and it's 80-20. If you decided before, I think it's 50-50. That's the right answer. Or it's 62, whatever. Um, What's going to happen is that all the hitters are going to look really expensive to you because everyone's putting in so much more more uh, money, and all the pitching is going to look really cheap to you. So you're going to end up with a fantastic pitching team, but because it's Roto, your hitting team is going to stink. Remember, values, again, are all relative. And when I, I just talked about the concept of a market premium, is in that scenario, you can start with a 50-50, but then your market premium for hitting is going to be enormous. It's going to be $6 a player. Why do that? 
set values so that your initial conception is zero, that there shouldn't be any market premium. The only market premium should be either um, a top pitcher versus a middle pitcher versus a buy within each each uh, position. Or, you know, you might find a market inefficiency. Maybe people are overpaying for second baseman. They're underpaying for third baseman. That's where you gain some value by finding the inefficiencies there. But between hitters and pitchers, you still got to draft 14 hitters. You still got to draft nine pitchers. You should make the numbers on your sheet look exactly the same. Uh, one caveat to that, if you are far better in hitting and pitching, tilt your numbers just a little bit more on pitching because you'll still be able to come up with bargains and you'll find some great ones on the hitting if you're better than it. If you're not as good as pitching, just give yourself a little bit more of a propensity to go the extra dollar and add a percent or two. So if uh, you think the room is going to be 62 uh, towards hitting and you're better at pitching, you know, just tilt it two more percent in the direction that you're worse at just to give you the incentive. Ruvain, any thoughts? Yeah, I'm going to add one thing to that. You have to be prepared and have a plan just in case what you prepared is not what the room is doing. So let's say you prepared 60-40, and all of a sudden it's starting to tilt more 80, like you said, 80-20. I'd love that because that way all teams are you know only going after one pitch, either pitching or hitting. That's great for me, hypothetically. But you have to be ready for an, an escape plan in case these changes because you have to have a, a, a plan A, and plan A is what you want to do. Plan B is if this happens. Plan C is if this happens. And if you go into that like that, you're not going to get as flustered during the actual auction, and you actually be able to get the players that you want. Yeah, you have to be adaptive, no doubt. And uh, like, like I said before, you got to be able to adjust to what the market premium is right in the fly. Uh, you know, we have we have leagues, and by the way, we we have home leagues, Ruben and I, that the pitching goes enormous. So we bake a little bit more. I tilt all the percentages to higher to pitching. We also have a league where pitching hardly goes any. Even you know the NFBC, it's going high, but in our home league, it doesn't. We tilt the percentages down. But of course, if things change, you got to adjust for that right on the fly. So bake in the market premium. Anything else to add, Derek, on, on that? No, I think that's uh, that's a really good way of looking at it. And and tilting slightly based on your strengths as a player is a, a nice adjustment to make, too. I think that was a good idea to bring that up. Yeah. Here's another big question that, that I get all over the place is, uh, you know, the, you have your own auction values. And to me, the two most important pieces of information in an auction, if you could only get two, a piece of paper with two numbers on the page, it's one, your auction value, and two, the market value, what we think the market is going to pay. So the question is, hey, Ariel, how do you come up with that? Where do you get for an auction market value? Well, what do you do for that, Derek? So I often look back at the draft or the auction from the year before. I look at those results and price the top players based on that. So if we're playing in an AL-only auction, what did Mike Trout go for last year, right? I want to know that and, and kind of work on everything based on that framework, at least as a starting point. And I look at those numbers compared to my projections for the current year. And obviously, you're going to have to make some adjustments for the different players in the pool. But just conceptually, what was that room like? What was top dollar for the best player, for the best hitter, the best pitcher, the first closer? All of those different types of things we would run through. What were prospects going for in the end game, right? How, how good was the best prospect? Was he, was he a $5 guy, a $7 guy? I, I try to look at that versus my projected values for the current season. And if my trout value from the previous year in that auction, if it was a he was a $45 player, and my numbers only have him at 38, and he's my best player again this year. I would say, all right, let's bump up 
the projected value a little bit just to get closer to where he should be because I think if you fail to do that if you fail to adjust for the situation that you're in you're going to run into a scenario that you described earlier where you're not going to get any of the elite hitters because you didn't account for the differences of that room I think market values are tricky for auctions because I think the, the unique dynamics of each auction doesn't necessarily give you this sort of common value the way we have in drafts with ADPs yeah no, definitely. Uh, and, and you're right that it, it's very hard to to come up with this because every auction is different. It's a little bit more similar when you have the same players and the same kind of dynamic in the room. But if you're in a new auction, it's really hard to to gauge. Um, but again, it, that's where the market premium comes in. No right away. <clears throat> so uh, when we were in Florida last year and we observed your uh, labor auction, uh, Ruben and I came with our own projected values and market values. We made a guess as to where things are going to go. And what we did is we just sat. And, okay, corner infielders, the first one, you know, we let's say uh, we thought the first one's going to go for $40. It went for 40 exactly. We write zero. The next corner infielder comes 40 we write zero. So right away with two players, we gauged from your draft that we think that the experts are going to be pretty much – on target from our guess, right? We're checking our guesses as to what's going to be. Pitchers, we saw a $2 market premium compared to not our values, but our guesses as to the market. So what we were able to do is what we were the third draft of that uh, of that weekend. On Sunday, we bumped up all of the starting pitchers $2 up top uh, just in case that, you know, experts for some reason have the same kind of thinking. Very hard to do, but it's about the making guesses. Um, but I'll give you three different options as to what I do to project. Um, first is if you can somehow find an AAV, average auction values. If you're playing in NFBC, they publish uh, average auction values from auctions that take place. Those are really good numbers, especially if you can find something in the same format that you're doing. That's the best. Um, second is you take an ADP. So go to the NFBC, take one, or go to Yahoo or CBS or anywhere where they publish ADPs. Take the one that most resembles your own uh, format and use a formula. Um, there's two ways to do the formula. Number one is some mathematical logarithmic, logarithmic formula. I think Jeff Zimmerman uh, a year or two ago published that on Fangraphs. Uh, but the other one that I like better is a little bit to, to what you do, do uh, Derek. You take last year and you take – the exactly the distribution. The top player went for 49. The second player went for 48. The third player went for 46. All the way down to the bottom, you know, the 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 hundredth player went for 10, and the next player went for 100. And you basically take the order one through 200 something, and you take the values in order from 49 all the way down to one. You match them up, and whatever ADP you have, assign last year's dollar value based on rank for them, and that gives you a nice distribution. It's always wonky at the top. You know, who knows whether somebody's willing to go to $60 this year or shy of 40 We don't know. But in general, that's a, a decent way that I found has worked over the years. Now, I actually have a follow-up. This is a question for both of you. Usually, when we, when we talk about the room, we're actually live in a room. Last year, a lot of these drafts were online instead of live. Does that really does that make a difference? Did you see a difference having a live auction suddenly now online and vice versa? What's going to happen when a online auction starts going live again? Is there going to be that big of a difference? I'll jump in first. I I think I am so focused on the screen in front of me in a live auction room that it doesn't 
make as much of a difference for me being online as it probably does for other people. Um, you know, I know Glenn Colton and Rick Wolf, for example, and working in tandem the way you guys do, I think can be really effective if you have a partnership that, that works out. I think sometimes they have you know, Rick kind of watching the room, watching how people are bidding, watching facial expressions, picking up on different things that are happening at the table that if you're playing on your own and you're not looking up once in a while, you're going to miss some of that, right? So I think if you if you really like to lean into some of those different cues that you might be able to get playing in person, you would have a little bit of a, a downgrade having to play online. I mean, I'm sure it's similar to the difference between sitting down and playing poker in a poker room versus playing poker on your computer, right? Similar concepts, at least. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Uh, I don't really know the effect of how others play differently, but I definitely find that it's much easier to read. It, well, it's, it is much easier to read people when you can see their expressions. I mean, when I play poker, I don't look at my cards first. I'm looking at how somebody else looks their the card. When there's a, a name called out at an auction, I don't need to go to my computer. I know the values pretty well. Uh, obviously, at some point, I'll type it in and just to, to have uh, the guy in there so I can mark down wh which team it goes. But I have, I have an idea, and Ruven has his sheets in front of him with the numbers also. Um, I'm more interested in looking at the reaction. I'm staring over there at all the players. Hmm. Did somebody flinch? Did somebody look like they need it? Did somebody is just, mm, nah, don't need him? And you can get a nice sense of how they're going to go, where they're going to go, how much they need him, whether you can do some price enforcing. We'll talk a little bit about that. Whether you can get them to back off you, you can use. Also, it's about using your voice. I find that I, I try to uh, hypnotize people by how I say numbers and the inflection point. I'll start out a bit eight. But then I'll inflect if I want them to go higher, if I don't want them to go higher. doesn't always work, but I think it gives me an advantage that I totally lose when I'm sitting behind a computer. Um, in terms of having a partner, I think that having a partner is a bigger advantage on, on online than in person because in person I hear – the auction name. I hear the name, and right away I, I do my thing. Ruvain does his thing. If you're one person online, you've got to look at the draft board, then you look at your software, then go back and forth. It gives you only one set of eyes and hands. Uh, I, I'd much rather do it with two online. So I think it's a bigger advantage for that reason, having the partner, but it's less of an advantage in terms of how to bid and, and price marketing. Is, is that fair, Derek, you think? Yeah, I mean, I think... I'm a multi-screen person all the time. <laughs> There's never a time when I'm working or drafting where I don't have at least the two screens going simultaneously. But I, I'm trying to think if there's anything I pick up on online. Sometimes the cadence of someone's bidding. I, I think if you see yeah. someone waiting until the going once, going twice to jump in, you know they're maybe not sure or they're they're trying to be kind of coy. If you see someone going back and forth, player starts at eight and it's going nine, ten, eleven, twelve. It's just real quick. I think to me that's a sign that someone usually wants a player, and it's a really weird way to show that you want a player when you could just you know, jump the player up. And I think it's actually harder to read a jump bid than it is to read someone bidding quickly, but that's just my opinion. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think online especially, so if you're auctioning online in tandem, you could be in the same room if you want to be, or you could just be on you know, Skype or Zoom or whatever, and you could actually talk. Like, if you're sitting next to each other at an auction table, you really can't talk about what you want to do with the other people in the league sitting yeah, right next yeah. to you, but you can openly talk about what you're doing 
as it's happening if you're auctioning online in a tandem. Thousand percent. Um, and and you're right about the noticing how they bid. Uh, I was in uh, Tout Wars last year. And uh, I noticed that whenever Alex Chamberlain wanted somebody, he was the first person, click, right there. And then he didn't bid, then he didn't bid, and then he came on in the end. So I, we, we were able to uh, price enforce. Uh, um, I bid up uh, uh, Alex Chamberlain because uh, I knew he wanted that player. So, hmm, you want Nelson Cruz? I'm just going to bid another dollar. Uh, you, want, uh, you put up Aaron Judge? Oh, I'm going to bid another dollar. I know you're going to go the extra dollar there. Um, so that's something I, I noticed. Um, I'm now, uh, before we talk about a little bit about the bidding and the nominating and whatnot, um, a little bit about studying other players. Um, as you might know, you, I think you devoted about 15 minutes on the athletic show, uh, this year, uh, to how I rated and reviewed Ian Khan and others from, from the, uh, from my league. Uh, I am a very big prep on knowing the players, because I think that there's an advantage in knowing what they're going to do because I'm going to alter my plan. If I know that a certain player wants uh, a certain t- uh, owner wants a certain player, I- I'm not going to get them. I'm going to plan around them. If I know somebody plays in the $15 pitcher space and buys up all of them, I probably won't be able to play as much. I might have to tilt off of that. I'll notice very quickly what somebody who's nominating of very quickly what they want, what they don't want. I like to zone in on that, in that on scout players very, very much. Go to Ruvain first. What, what do you feel about that? Do you agree with that? Do you do any of that on your own? Um, I really don't. Um, I, I mean, you do it a lot more than I do. I mean, we were watching some of these auctions in Florida last year. I wasn't really looking at how they were bidding. I wasn't looking at how they were, how the how it was going. I was watching watching the big board, watching how the how certain positions were going, how steals were going, how home runs were going. And I was, I was watching that. I don't scouting the player. It's really helps more if you're in a home league, but it's a lot harder if you're in an NFBC and you don't know the people. Now, granted, we're in an NFBC league that we've been doing for years. It's a Friday morning league. We know these players. We actually know how they play. Is that an advantage? Not really, because they know how we play also. So, you know, it goes both ways. It's not either way, but I, it's, it's better to know and watch the board, I, big board, I think, as opposed to actually scouting the players. Yeah, Derek, do, do you scout people or do you rely your plan on what other tendencies are? I guess I, I would say I'm, I'm paying attention to what other people are doing to some extent. I, I'm not going to completely overlook that uh, in NL Labor, for example, Derek Hardy only draft pitchers in the reserve rounds, right? So if I'm making a reserve pick and I'm thinking about a pitcher versus a hitter, I know that if I let the pitcher go, there's a good chance that in Derek's two turns before my next one, that pitcher is more likely to be gone, right? So little things like that. I mean, I I am trying to pick up on patterns of of like the one you described with, with Alex, where if someone is in early and then swooping back in late, that's a pretty good tell that they're, they're into that player. But I think it's helpful to understand the tendencies and desires of the people you're playing against. It can be a slippery slope. I think you can almost become too fixated on what everybody else is trying to do. And then you start to miss out on opportunities to give yourself the best possible roster. So I do think it's, it, it's an important balance to strike. You want to know as much as you can about the competition, but you don't want it to start costing you quality players because you know, you're reading too much into something else that's happening at the table. 
Yeah, no doubt. And and I do that as a poker player, especially poker is quite a bit psychology and quite a bit reading people. So maybe it's my poker in, poker uh, tendencies in me that allows me to do that more than other people. Uh, and it doesn't take away from anything else I'm doing at the draft. Uh, I, I just noticed that I do that, and I noticed that I extract value because of it. I, mean, I wouldn't do it unless I thought it would be helpful. Um, Want to talk about nominations and nominating players. I think this, this is one of the things in auctions that people do – I'm not going to say overlook. I think they do it wrong. I really believe that people do not know how to nominate players, and that's one of of my advantage, one of our advantages, Ruben and I, uh, that we do things a little bit better than others. Um, and what I mean by that is I, I've seen this strategy where just nominate players you don't want in the very beginning. Um, I think that's such a lousy strategy. I think that uh, if, if you're just doing that, you're losing information. Like You have uh, the ability to extract information about maybe what path your plan is, uh, what, what path decision tree your team wants to go in. Um, you might have to know what to do about a certain player. So you got, even though he's a guy that you like, you might have to bid him first. And there's different parts in the draft. I mean, if I have a lot of money at a certain point in the draft uh, and I have more than the average, I don't want to be in that position. I'd rather be as close to the average as possible. Then I'll nominate players I don't want. Or if I picked a very expensive first baseman uh, right before, the next my next nomination is that first baseman, unless I need to know information about somebody else. Do, how do you nominate players, and, and what are you thinking of for that? Well, I think you have to have a purpose for every nomination. And there could be a lot of different reasons you would choose to nominate one player versus the other. I mean, if we're... Early on in an auction, and let's say everything's coming up plus four, plus five, plus six, right? People are, are overspending values, even adjusted values, by a healthy margin. At that point, I'm probably going to throw a player I don't really want to buy. An expensive player, of course, because people are overpaying, in my estimation. Uh, so you know, in that situation, I'm just making sure that someone else is getting a player that I don't really want at a price that I would love for them to pay. In an instance where prices are pretty fair, I might actually go ahead and nominate a player I want because the room tends to price players off of other similar players that were recently sold, right? So that's a really important part to think about early. Like, what's happening in the room? If you don't like prices and you want to go back to a group of players later, I think throwing the room to a totally different type of player is one way to do that. So if your nomination comes up and we're talking about elite hitters going for 40 plus and you're like, wow. I want to get an elite hitter, but I want to pay 35 instead. Great. Nominate a closer. Do something completely different. Throw a prospect. Do something that gets the room away from the, the pattern of buying $40 players. I think there's other times where you know if you're not sure what to do and you want to just basically call a timeout, throw a player that's going to go for a lot of money and start the bidding a lot lower than you ordinarily would and just like catch your breath for a minute if you're not going to get that player, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways that you can take advantage of actually nominating a player. And I think you're right. I think there are some people that just say, oh, it's my turn. I'll just throw whatever. And I think that's an opportunity lost. Yeah. Ruvain, well, uh, when we do uh, auctions, um, you know, I'm doing the number crunching and you're doing the who would we nominate next because we think it's so important. So maybe you can tell everybody some of the tactics that we use uh, in, in what we do during the auction for a nomination. 
Yeah, well, first of all, one thing we do is we, in the very beginning of the draft, we want to throw someone out that we want, someone that we want to test the market for. Like, let's say, hypothetically, we want a corner infielder. We want a high-priced corner infielder just to get the base stats. Let's say we want Freddie Freeman. We'll nominate Freddie Freeman just to see how the market reacts to him. We want to see how things go. Even if he's the first, listen, you can have the first pick. You can throw out Freddie Freeman first. That You may get a bargain on that because people people may want to spend money elsewhere. So you may actually get a bargain on that. So we want to test the waters and see how the room, you know, just see what the room is like. That's number one. Number two, do not only nominate players that you want. Switch it up a little bit. Otherwise, other players in the room, it's going to be a tell. You want a guy, you're going to nominate him. People are going to say, okay, you know what? We know what this person's going after him. We're going to, we know exactly what to do. Number three, if you draft and you get JT Realmuto, don't nominate every single catcher. It does not help you. They're going to get nominated anyway. You, you're better off nominating something that you want to see how the market is as opposed to nominating this, you know, another catcher because you don't need that catcher. Yes, there's room on your roster for it. And these other players are not going to overspend on Wilson Ramos just because you nominate him in the, in the fifth or sixth round. It just doesn't work that way. You don't get anything out of it. Of course, you know, you're telling everybody we're going to nominate the player we want. Of course, we will indeed switch that up this year so that anybody listening, playing in our drafts will not be able to ascertain what we're doing uh but there's a, a lot of, <laughs> right there's a lot of <laughs> other uh uh well there are a lot of other tidbits and tricks like uh, one thing that we came up with last year was the uh the joey Votto nomination joey Votto we had maybe worth six dollars on our uh auction prices but you know if he's the kind of guy that might at the very end somebody will be lucky enough to get for a dollar now I'll be happy to get Joey Votto for a dollar. Didn't really want to buy him for three dollars, which would have been a bargain, but I probably wanted a different entity or a different somewhere else. So, in order to collapse the uh, return on investment for others, somewhere in the middle of the auction, Joey Votto a dollar. That that ensures either I get that ridiculous one to six ratio, or he'll probably be bid up to three or four, and it collapses somebody's profit potential. A hundred percent. So uh, that's another thing. You want to get some of those really guys who you don't really want, but your numbers say it's worth it, and you're happy to take for one. Get some of those out as well. Um, what are some examples of that? I mean, Yasiel Puig was a guy last year we did that with. Um, now, the other thing about auction is that uh, you don't have to nominate players in order. You might want to nominate players um, to acquire certain statistics in the middle. I think last year one of our plans was, and it didn't work because Elvis Andrus did not steal many bases last year. Um, and he was injured for some of it. But we figured, we saw that Elvis Andrus, according to our values, was a nice $7 bargain or whatever it was. And we threw him out pretty early on because we wanted to bank up the speed at where we thought we can get him cheaply and then go for power later on. So you can do that. Feel free in nominating a guy who thinks only worth $7 if you think it's going to help your overall roster construction. A lot of tidbits like that. Any, any other ones to add, Derek? No, I just think the main takeaway, if if you didn't listen to anything I said at the first part of that answer, have a reason for right. nominating the player that you nominate. Right, right, right. Information is key, and, and do that. Um, now... Uh, Oh, the other uh, the other thing that uh, do, I do want to tell people is uh, uh, it's something we call the economic box. Um, don't if if you want a certain player in a certain category, if you want one of the next three starting pitchers, 
don't nominate a guy above a player and below a player so that the only guy who's available anywhere close to that is the player you want. If there's only one pitcher in a tier left, that pitcher is going to go for more value than it should, right? If you have a, a, a jewelry store and you see a nice shiny pendant in a box somewhere up, it looks like it's worth more value than it is. People will pay up. You want to nominate the players before they are the last person in the tier. If there's a guy that you want and that's three, there's two players above, nominate your guy first so that he won't get inflated by economic pressures of the market, right? If he's the last player in the tier, you're just going to get an automatic extra dollar or two because it's supply and demand. If there's no more supply, his price goes up. So that's uh, nominate guys. Don't let guys in a box. And conversely, if you don't want a player, let's say there are two guys in a tier and you don't want uh, the top player or the second player, don't nominate the top one if you want to get rid of a player. Nominate the second one or third one. Slice up the tier. The more you slice up the the board to generate these boxes of players where they're all out alone up top and shiny the more you'll extract value from the rest of the field people will overbid if they can if they perceive that ah i gotta get them the supply is limited uh so slice up tiers when you don't and get don't let it get into the box nominate your guys first so good stuff there um uh, talk a little about bidding um you have to throw a number out first do you have any general rule, Derek, as to what you're throwing out first? I don't have a, at least not, I don't have a firm rule. I think I, I tend to go half or two thirds, sometimes even three quarters of what I'm willing to spend. I, I, I think it's ambiguous enough where it doesn't really give you a complete intent of how high I'm going to go. And it's not so low that we're taking a $40 player and starting them at one. Cause I, I'm, it drives me crazy when people do that. I, some people argue, they say, oh, well, if I throw him at 25 instead of one, there's a, there's a one in a thousand chance I'm going to get the player for 24. And if it's a $40 player, there's not a one in a 1,000 chance you're going to get him for that price. It's just not going to work like that. So, uh, you know, keep things moving, I guess, is, is one of my early tactics, especially just because I think people make bad decisions when they have to hurry. That's my main reason for doing it. The quicker we can get closer to the sale price, the less time everybody at the table has to think about how that player and how those stats and how that price fits into their roster. Yeah. Well, I, um, when it's down to, you know, five, six, seven dollar players, I'll throw out one or two because sure. uh, I don't want to make the mistake of this guy's worth six and and uh, I, I bid three and that's it. And I, I could have gotten him for one. Uh, but, yeah, if there's a player worth twenty five, I'm not I'll start something much higher. Um, I've tried before throwing out random bids. Uh, the, the idea is I, I don't want people to call any attention to what I'm doing. I want to hypnotize people and be dull. Um, and I've tried random. I've actually noticed you're better off doing some number, 19, 19, 19, so that it just gets lost. Oh, he always he always starts out with 19, whatever. Uh, that you can't tell whether I want the player, I don't want the player. I'm just going to say 19, whatever it is. And I'll pick a different number each auction. Some auctions it'll be 12. Some auctions will be 18. Sometimes I'll, I'll be funny and I'll go, you know, uh, quarter, you know, uh, five. You know, I'll make funny, funny gestures, but it'll always be the same funny gesture as to hypnotize people or to get people laugh. Or, and, you know, it's also about having fun. You want to make the room smile. So, uh, you know, if you can inject that personality, just like you would do in poker, right? You want to tell a joke at the poker table. It, it's a good tactic to get people to do things. Uh, anything I miss, Ruvain? 
you know, one other thing, if you're by yourself, you're doing the ocean by yourself and you're falling behind and you want to say, you want to get some time to catch up. That's when you get like a, a $15 player, you start them at one. That, and, and if you know you don't want them, then you'll have some time to catch up, to be, to see what's going on and, you know, get, get your bearings of the room again. Uh, Derek, talk about uh, either freezing play, freezing the room where you just bid a, a very high bid close to what you'd pay for, um, and and also can you talk about price and forcing? Do you think that you should bid the extra dollar to get somebody up, or is that a bad idea? So I think freezing the room works. I, it's almost like man, it's like throwing the ethos out there in some ways. It has to be a little bit unexpected to really work optimally. And I would say that in a typical auction, Especially with expensive players, I'm probably not trying to freeze the room more than once. I mean, it, it's just one of those things. Later on, maybe if if we're in the most players left are going for five bucks or less, and there's a handful of people that can go more than a buck for their bid, maybe then you can throw a freeze bid out there. But to me, that's not quite the same, right? It it really is right. only a true freeze bid if the entire room, for the most part, could bid and doesn't because you kind of stick the landing with the perfect number. So I wouldn't do it a lot. Uh, I would do it with a really high-end polarizing player if I was going to do it. Probably Adalberto Mondesi, right? Like if you have a, a fixed number, you're like, you know what? I like Adalberto Mondesi at $29. That's my number. I'm not going to pay 30 29 is a number I'm comfortable with. This is the first time I'm nominating a player in this auction. I want to know if I have Mondesi on my team right away. So I'm going to throw him out there at my max bid because... People aren't really sure if they want to build around him. And it goes back to what I was saying before, right? You shorten up the amount of time people have to make that decision. You might end up getting the player you want at the price that you want. But I would definitely be careful about throwing multiple players. Like we're talking a handful of players at 20 plus trying to freeze bid people. I don't think that is a very effective way to go. I mean, if you believe you can do it, go for it. But I, I, I don't think that tactic works well if you do it too often. Ruvain, do you believe that uh, you sh- somebody should bid on every player or on most players, or should you bid more sparingly? I think big- bidding on every player gives you the advantage of making the room think that you are bid that you're getting every player. It, it just it confuses everybody, and it, it helps in the fact that it, you people can't see what strategy you have, and, and that's really a big advantage. As for the freeze bid, we, me and you, Ara, we discussed this before labor. And we decided, just on, on, a, on a lark, because we normally don't do this, to throw Rafael Devers out for $30. And we did that last year, and we heard crickets. And we were ecstatic. It, it's, it's very rare. And just like uh, Derek said, you have to pick the right player, the right time, and the right amount. Otherwise, you know, it, it's, and you can't do it more than once. It, it's, it's like, exactly, the EFIS piss you mentioned. You can't do it more than once, otherwise someone's going to be waiting on that. Correction, though, we, we uh, put out $24 for Devers. I'm we sorry, it was, 20, pretty, uh, it was $24. Yeah, we got a really nice plan. And we froze the room on that, and we looked at each other. We that, that was Yeah, I, I, I have uh, – th- that was my first live uh, expert auction and first my first nomination ever, and I got a freeze bid there. Uh, and, yeah, but I agree with you, Derek. Uh, I would only use that once or twice a game, if that, uh, if, if that makes sense. Uh, last question on this topic – do you believe in the fact that people won't go to zero? So if you bid 19, you have a better chance of getting a guy. So if the bidding goes 16, 17, jump to 19, uh, and you won't get another. I guess there's two questions in there. One is, the jump. do jump bids work by jumping two? And also the question of, is there something about the nines that you've noticed? 
it seems like there's something about the nines. I don't know if there's any research that's been done lately on that. But if you look at a board, you, you see a lot of 19s, 29s, nines later on. It's it's why so many prices in this world end in nine. It, it, there is something to that. Uh, whether or not it's always worth it to go from 17 to 19, I mean, depends on the player, right? If you're talking about someone who's going to go for 21 or 22 more often than not, jumping from 17 to 19, it's worth it in case you get the couple bucks off. If you don't, someone goes 20, you jump in at 21, and you still got a shot at getting the player right around the value. So I, I'm comfortable bidding that way and putting the extra dollar in those bids. I don't, I don't know if it helps me win players at an extraordinarily high rate. You know, it's one of those things that you're just kind of feeling out the situation with who you're bidding against and who you're bidding on and what those projections look like probably on, on everybody's sheet, hopefully in most cases, which again, like I've said this before, one of my favorite things about projections is that it gives you some insight into what everybody else in the room wants to do with players. Right. Um, I, I'll tell you my thoughts on those. I don't think that there's anything to the nines. Um, I, I've done a little bit of research on some home leagues that I've done, and I've actually noticed that the zeros are a, a bigger factor. Like if you bid 20, less people will go to 21 uh, as opposed to 19 to 20. Uh, that's the research I've seen, but it's small sample size to tell you that it's true. As far as jump bids, I don't think that it helps me get players anymore. But I do think that I feel less bad if I don't get the player and I jump bid. So if I jump bid two and then somebody bids above, I'm like, okay, at least I at least I jumped it two. You know, I would have f- felt much worse if I bid one and they bid one over and then, I don't know, I don't want to go that extra buck and they got him. I'm like, why didn't I just go that extra and jump bid two? So I'll, I don't think it works to get many more, many more players but I feel better about myself. And of course it's all about feeling better, right? <laughs> well, one other, th- one other thing that we do is if we know the players, let's say is worth $21, sometimes we want to stay on the odd numbers. So if we're like 17 or if it's on bid 16, we'll jump to 19 as opposed to jumping one or two, you know, two jumping three instead, because we want to stay in that range of the price of the player. Yeah, no, that's a good point. If there is, you have a set price in mind for what you want to play, it's good to get on the odds or the evens. If you know you're going to bid up to 21 and, and it is even, then switch it to odd. Uh, that is a good point, and I found that that actually is more helpful than just um, just the jump bidding or, or the zeros, nines things. All right, well, anything else to add about auction, auction strategy before we wrap up our strategy section? This was, this was really good tonight, Derek. I think we had a lot of good tidbits and information to give everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think people, if they've watched me auction, more often than not, I do probably spend a lot of money quickly, but that's not necessarily what I'm going to do if I don't like the prices. I think uh, some people get really married to stars and scrubs versus a balanced approach going in, and I would say you really need to be able to build a team both ways, depending on what's happening in that particular room on that particular day. Yeah. Oh, one question I do want to ask, though, uh, is uh, draft inflation. Uh, I know a lot of people track draft inflation. If everybody's going over, then you should see some fall, some prices falling, uh, or that you wait for the point where prices are falling. Do, do you track draft inflation or think that that exists or, or anything to it? I don't track it with precision. I know you could sit there and like if you had a pad of paper or if on your spreadsheet you wanted to keep adding in the values and have it calculate inflation for you, you, know, you could do that. I think 
I feel like I've done enough auctions where I I sort of know, right? If we're if we're two, three, four over value on the first forty or so players, then a lot of the three and four dollar players, the bottom of the pool, they just became one dollar players, and and that's okay. And if that that surplus bidding is more than two, three, or four dollars, or if it's more than the first forty or so players, then you start to get to the point where the mid tier players start to come at significant discounts, and that's when things get really interesting. I mean, that's literally that's what happened in mixed tout last year everybody pushed hard at the top and the whole bottom half of the pool went for a lot less than it should have which when that happens that's kind of jarring when the first scenario I described happens that's pretty normal for the auctions that I'm in yeah that and that helps a guy like Jeff Zimmerman who just plays $15 players where uh, Jason Gray used to do, I think, uh, because he, the, you can scoop up all those people in the middle, uh, you know. But uh, I, I don't believe in draft inflation. I think I'm, I'm like you. I, I've, I've done enough of these to just know it off the top of my head. Uh, other than we track market market premiums, you know, we we want to know how much we have to pay to be in that tier. But I don't really track it as as it goes on. I will say though that keeper draft keeper inflation that is real. If if you have you, uh, you know normally you have two hundred sixty dollars projected for $260 of value, if you have keepers and you're buying players cheaper, you might have uh, uh, you know, $20 less of money, uh, but only $10 less of value to get. So each player is worth more only because you've kept players at bargain. So that is true, and but that's not an in-draft thing. That's something that you just have to set up your values before the auction. Uh, all right, so we are going to do some uh, ATC player discussion today for a little bit. Only a couple players today since we had a long discussion about strategy. Today we're going to start our outfielders discussion. And our uh, again, the way we do it is uh, it's we check ATC values versus what the ADP is saying to talk about which players might be worth zoning in on if you want to get a bargain. And we'll do a little bit of a deep dive to see whether we want them. Our first... Outfielder is Bryce Harper, and it's now time for the Injury Guru's Trivia of the Week. Well, we're going to be talking about Bryce Harper now. Bryce Harper had eight stolen bases last year. There were seven outfielders who had 10 or more stolen bases, but only two of those seven also had 10 or more home runs. So name the two players who had 10 or more stolen bases and 10 or more home runs that played in the, that were eligible in the outfield last year. It's hmm. a great question. One oh. of them, I'll, I'm going to give you a hint. One of them was in the top 50 ADP from last year, and one of them was in the 250 to 300 range of ADP from last year. Got to be Mookie Betts, right? Mookie Betts was the one who was in the top 50. Yes, he did that. There's one other player who did it. Luis Robert? Who? No, he missed, he, missed, he missed by one stolen base. The answer is actually Trent Grisham, Trent Grisham. which is very interesting because he was going between anywhere between 250 and 300 last year, which means that you can get stolen bases later in the draft. They'll, they'll, they will be there. So that's something to, very, to look into, especially Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper had eight stolen bases, so he only missed it by two last year. He was actually on pace for a thir- almost 30 homers, 18 stolen bases, 90-plus nine, RBIs. His average was pretty decent, 270 average. Um, he lowered his K rate from last year. His, he had a tem- his Babbitt was also a little bit low last year, so I think there will be some bounce back from the average as well. And he had the lowest soft contact rate of his career at 9%. 
His walk rate ran up. All these things are positive. These are numbers that could be similar. I'm not saying he is, but could be similar at the end of the season to someone like Mike Trout. He can hit those 40 home runs. He can steal more bases than Mike Trout at this point because they're about the same age, but it seems like Bryce Harper is still stealing while Mike Trout's stolen bases are going down. Yeah. I, I, what are your thoughts on, on Bryce Harper, Derek? I mean, to me, Bryce Harper is a five-category player. He's going to steal 15 bases like he always does. Um, he He's going to hit, you know, high 30s homers. His strikeout rate isn't crazy, so I don't see much batting average downside. I mean, we're talking 260s at the bare minimum. Um, if you look at his ATC interprojectional standard deviation, it's on the lowest side. He's less risky. Um, I mean, he's a guy who is going to finish pretty high up and has a pretty high floor. I think that with the fact that push, pitching is being pushed up so much, somehow Bryce Harper is being pushed out of the first round and really his value deserves to be in it. So if you're lucky enough to get him and be in a position later, early in the second round, even even at that spot, I think he's just a super great player to have. It helps roster construction up and down the entire the entire uh, draft. Uh, what are your thoughts on him? Yeah, I mean, if you're in a snake situation especially and you want to take a pitcher in round one, you're getting a first-round caliber hitter if you get Harper coming back through in the second. Goes around, like, pick 20, I think, is usually the ADP. Yep. The batting average is the one category that's a little bit weak, but, I mean, if we're looking at high 260s or low 270s is where he ends up there with the run production and power, like you said. He still hits the ball really hard. Obviously, he's still pretty young for a guy who's been around forever. He just turned 28 back in October, so we're not talking about a guy who's necessarily far past his peak or even past his peak at all yet, potentially. Obviously, being in that park is good for him, too. He ticks all the boxes at this point. I think he's kind of shook the uh, early career injury risk that he brought from smashing into walls and just like being a young player who thought he was indestructible. Like I think he's realized, like, oh, actually... I can't run into walls full speed anymore. I need to, you know, not do that. And 159 games in 2018, 157 games in 2019, and 58 out of 60 in the shortened season. So the durability grade is probably closer to an A now than it's ever been with Bryce Harper. Yeah, and if you're in an OBP league, he's absolutely golden. It's incredible. Um, I think that you're right. In a draft, if you have taken a pitcher your first round, he is an instant get. I think there's nobody better on the board. The question is, if you've picked a, a hitter in the first round, is it worth passing up on him because you need that pitcher? I don't think so. I think that it's worth having his base, and it'll fill it out. He, here's an interesting player comparison and why I don't think that Francisco Lindor is a great pick. What's the difference between Bryce Harper and Francisco Lindor uh, in terms of statistics? I mean, I think you're getting a similar batting average, to be frankly honest, and I think you're getting a similar stolen bases. I don't think Lindor has that 20-something uh, uh, stolen base contribution, and Harper is going to get you 15. Maybe he'll get you 20 if you're lucky. He had 21 back in 2016, and he's going to get you a ton of more homers, a ton more RBIs. I can't see any argument for taking Francisco Lindor when Bryce Harper is such a better commodity. Do you agree with that? I think it comes down to that stolen base total. I mean, if he ends up being, if Lindor finishes in the 15 to 19 range among steals, you might be disappointed you didn't take Harper because the run production from Harper and the power should be better. Just a little bit better anyway. If Lindor finds his way to 25 bags, then 
that was the right answer. I would hate to live on the difference between those two players, as our friend Todd Zola often says. Uh, I've got Lindor slightly ahead of Harper. I think, you know, in the moment, it really depends on what I think the room is going to do. But I think the speed for Lindor is the difference for me. Oh, that's true. But I, I think that there's more risk involved with Lindor. I, I can see the, the scenarios being equal. 50% chance he can get 25, 50% chance he can get 15 even. With mm-hmm. Harper, uh, I think his variability is lower. Uh, and for that, I, I would rather take the player with the higher floor. And uh, to me, that's Bryce Harper. Um, any other thoughts on Harper, Ruben? No, I think that's. I think we hit it on the head. I think he he is a first rounder, and I'd actually take him over Lindor. Also, even though we're both Met fans and we both like Lindor a lot, and we don't like Philly that much, but still, uh, fantasy wise, Bryce Harper is the perfect base if you're going to go pitcher in the first round. Yeah, you know, we were talking about nominations, and you know, one thing Ruvain and I like to do is, uh, you know, in a New York auction, maybe test out. Yeah, let's put up Lindor. Maybe everyone will say, "Oh, Lindor, let's go bid high on him." He's a guy that we might consider in a New York auction throwing out and let people go sky high if we don't believe in him. And we'll swoop in for Harper, I think. Um, maybe. Of course, we might be telling maybe. you this to uh, trick yes. everybody. <laughs> we're, 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 throw, we're throwing everybody off right now, so we're good. We're fine. <laughs> uh, Nick Castellanos uh, is our next guy here. Uh, now, he was a bargain. He is a bargain, according to the NFBC ADP of 87. In uh, the mixed labor draft the other night, he went 66th pick. So there's a very big discrepancy in terms of his value, according to the experts versus NFBC. So whether he's a bargain or not, uh, not so sure. It looks like maybe his ADP will go up. But uh, at the level that I described in the sixth round, he is uh, a nice bargain, I believe. His uh, barrels have been up. His fly balls up. Homers to fly ball up. His stock has been up. His the he, the consistency of his rotisserie value is tremendous. He his value since two, 2017 in terms of five by five fifteen team sixteen dollars twenty three eighteen seventeen. I didn't mention a number below sixteen dollars. So we're talking about a low risk player. His ATC interprojection metrics are all on the good side. Low interprojection volatility. He's got a negative skew. So actually projections are even higher than what ATC says uh, in terms of quantity. Um, and uh, the only thing is he doesn't have any steals. But to me, he's going three rounds later than some guys, let's say, uh, what's the difference between him and Jose Abreu? Um, I mean, Castellanos, 30 home run guy. Abreu, probably something similar. Batting average, um, I have Castellanos projected for 267, but maybe it's higher. I mean, his career BABIP has been 330, his career BABIP. Um, and in 2020, it was 257. The last Three years before last year, he only hit 225, but before then, 272, 298, 289. I think there's batting average upside. I think that he'll be in the right in the middle of the order. He'll get counting stats. I, I think that for the value, for the round, he's a much better pick than guys like Rendon, Springer, Jose Abreu, who have somewhat similar statistics. I think you can get just about the same production and three rounds later. Your thoughts, Derek? Yeah, I, I think. I like Castellanos as a relative value. I I like a lot of the other players that you mentioned, though, too, if I'm going really hitter-heavy early and I'm looking at a guy like Rendon maybe in the third round after getting two hitters that run. In that case, you know, I'm comfortable with Rendon there. But if I feel like the room's going to push pitching, obviously the the type of player that Rendon is exists in similar forms at other points on the board. And Nick Castellanos is a good example of that. Uh, there's other players in that range. I would say 
maybe even his teammate, Mike Moustakis, is a little bit similar, where a little more batting average risk, but you're getting cheap power and good run production at a very reasonable price. Uh, Chris Bryant, you know, in his current form, might fall into this group. Paul Goldschmidt kind of falls into this group, too. So uh, I think those guys are pretty good reasons to pass on the Abreu and Rendon types if you need speed up top or if you really want to make sure you're getting pitching early on. Yeah, and, and the uh, devil's advocate argument would say that, you know, what's the difference between Castellanos and a guy like Randall Grichuk, who might have, you know, a couple less homers, a little bit less batting average. There's a lot of players who are going to have 25 to 30 homers who are going to hit, I don't know, 240-ish or so. So you're trading 10 points of batting average, but you can take them seven rounds, eight rounds later. So it, his profile isn't a unique one. That's the problem, I think, with Castellanos in a draft. His profile is not a unique one. There might be a better use of resources in the sixth round. You might want a closer. You know, are you going to pass on Liam Hendricks in the sixth round to take Castellanos when you can get some, also get similar production later on? So I'd hesitate a little bit on draft only because of the makeup. But uh, in an auction, I think that that's a good value because in an auction, you don't have to have a sixth rounder in a sixth round and a seventh round and a seventh round and a tenth round and a tenth round. You can buy a couple of sixth rounders and you might find that's a better value than buying a second-round player. Uh, so I would probably – I'm more inclined to get him in an auction than a draft. Ruvain, your thoughts? Yeah, I, you guys pretty much nailed it. There's just two things I want to add. The first thing, a positive thing, is that he hits 47% of his hits are up the middle, which means they can't shift on him, which is excellent for him, and, and that's why I think his Babbitt will go up next year, and I think his batting average is something more of a lock closer to what his career is. And secondly – have to see what the Reds do. If they, tra- if they trade uh, Eugenio Suarez, he's only going to have Mike Moustakis in that lineup with him, and he will not have any protection whatsoever. He had that similar also in Detroit um, when he didn't have that much protection, and he yes, he was good, but they were always pitching around him. He wasn't as good as he could be. So as long as Cincinnati keeps Suarez, I think he'll be the player that everyone wants, Castellanos. So the next player is somebody who's been on my list for the last three years in a row. Those who followed me, uh, it's Eddie Rosario. Um, Now, it's possible that a little bit of this ADP difference has to do with before he signed, although I've tried to pick dates in my NFBC uh, somewhat after he uh, signed. Uh, But he's going to pick 122, which is the ninth round. Now, the funny thing about him is let's review his roto history. $18, $21, then $22, $24. That's an upward trend, and his ADP just keeps going down. For the third consecutive year, his ADP is lower. Um, in, uh, in labor, he, uh, he actually wasn't so bad. Uh, he went at number 86, so again, less of a value according to the experts, but in the NFBC, still really, really, really low. Um, your, your thoughts uh, before I give mine? Your, your thoughts, Derek? He is creeping up a little bit. I was just looking since February 1st. Eddie Rosario's ADP is about pick 100 in the NFBC. So now okay. that he has a team that has stabilized things a little bit, same time, I, I don't think that's a bad price for him. He doesn't yeah. strike out a lot. Like Even though he doesn't walk, which I think drives that low OBP and maybe steers some people away, he's an everyday guy. He's high in the order. The park boosts power. So... I don't think we're going to see a major home run drop off from Eddie Rosario leaving Minnesota going to Cleveland. Maybe get a slight boost. I know he doesn't steal bases, but you're getting, I think, probably a four-category player. I think he's good in average, at least above average in home runs and run production, if not even better than that. So two thumbs up for me. I, I think he's 
really nice in that range. Yeah, and I actually think he might be a four-and-a-half category player. Minnesota does not steal bases. That's Minnesota. Uh, I think Cleveland might be more inclined to. And Rosario has stolen bases in the past. He has had years. He had a year where he had eight, nine, and 11 stolen bases. Last year he had three in the short season, which would have been a full season's eight. I think that you could be surprised and end up with as many as 10 stolen bases, and that would make him actually a plus player in stolen bases. Possible. Um, I'll still bet the under on that, but I think it's totally within reason. Um, I mean, this is a guy who uh, you mentioned the strikeout rate. He, his contact, his strikeout rate in the past two years has been each under 15%. That's enormous. I think that there is a huge batting average floor. I mean, this is a guy who should be hitting over 270. Um, and the homers, I, I think that he's been hampered by injuries throughout his career. I, he's had halves where he hit 20 homers and a half. Like He's had the pace for multiple halves in his career where he had a pace of 40 homers. Uh, if you bet on 30 homers, he is a bargain. He has the upside of 40 homers. I just think that his injuries have gotten to him. And he's not 30 yet. He's still 29. I think this is a guy that, again, uh, potential for bargain. Although, as you said, Derek, it's it, his ADP is creeping up a little bit, so the bargain is shrinking. Uh, but I think it's still fantastic for what you're getting all over the place. Ruben? I think we can reference another former Twins player, um, Eddie Guardado. He, this, uh, Eddie Rosario is an everyday Eddie. He, when he plays, he is boring, which is a good thing to have. He's boring means that he'll get what you need. He's not that flashy. And his name just always seems to slip down the list, which is great. A couple things about him. First of all, he's where he's batting in the lineup right now according to roster resources he's bad he's batting between jose ramirez and fran moraes now that is pretty good i like that his peripheral numbers have, have stayed the same throughout his entire career the walk rate the k rate everything is still the same and last year he was on pace for 30 and 10 and his babbit was a career low last year so you put all that together you know leaving Minnesota may not be the worst thing for him going there just like you mentioned he may get more stolen bases and i like where he's batting between those two guys also Next player is Charlie Blackman, a 304 lifetime batting average, fantastic contact rate. Uh, he's a guy that maybe you can't predict 300 batting average anymore, but 280, 290 definitely seems reasonable for him. Um, without going too much into him, I think the biggest reason why he is going at pick 103, even though he has you know, great, great stats, great potential, great batting average, is his age, 35 years old. He's broken down with the stolen bases already. You're going to get maybe two, three stolen bases if you're lucky. Um, question is, can he hold up? And is this a, 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 a veteran that just keeps on going, or do you see him hitting a wall, Derek? You know, not having Arenado in that lineup, it's going to hurt guys like Charlie Blackman. You know, I, I think there's some interesting players that can step in and be undervalued for us as fantasy players, but I think Charlie Blackman's counting stats will fall. They are not going to replicate Arenado's production with his replacements. That's fair to say. Age is a big factor here because I, I see Charlie Blackman and I see Jose Altuve kind of in similar light where you're getting low to mid-20s home runs, nice run production, and a strong batting average around that pick 100 range. And Altuve is quite a bit younger than Blackman. They both fit into somehow this old and boring and used to be great sort of category. But the age difference makes me a little more confident 
in Altuve than Blackman. I think Blackman's one of those guys that needs to come down in my rankings a little bit because I think we're talking about a guy that might have some durability issues too. This far into his 30s, as good as he's been to this point, it seems like a fool's errand to continue to bet that he will play at that level, especially with those changes in Colorado. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. I think you said it. Um, it's it's a bigger risk than you think. Ruben? Yeah, I'm a little bit nervous also because last year his home run to fly ball rate was 9%. His hard hit rate was down 10%. With that, he was only on pace for 15 home runs last year For if, if, it, if you extrapolate for the entire season. I'm a little nervous about him. And listen, if he moves and goes to a different lineup and he moves out of, moves out of Colorado, is that a plus or a minus? Is he going to still have the plus from losing the minus from going out of Colorado, but plus to go into a better lineup? Because it's very possible they traded Arenado. They could trade Blackman just as well. Yeah, there's too many people going in round seven or at in an, even in an auction at that price point that uh, I, I have much better uses of my resources on on much less riskier players and with much different profiles that I that I want to get. So I, I'm passing on Blackman. Um, last player we'll do tonight. I'll let Derek go first. His name is Alex Verdugo. Your thoughts? So with Verdugo. I'm not convinced that we're going to get another level power-wise. I think the batting average should be really solid. The run scored should be good. I think he's pretty much atop the lineup all season for Boston. I think the price is getting a little high for my liking. If you believe there's more power, you can justify him at ADP. I just don't believe it. I don't think it's in his profile. He runs a little bit. I don't think he's going to run a lot. I, I've... I want to look at him and say he's he's 24, and most 24-year-olds could still unlock something else. I just don't see it in the underlying numbers. A little surprised to see the strikeout rate jump up as much as it did for him last season, his first season in Boston, right? I mean, the parts of three seasons we saw in the big leagues before that, he was in that 13 to 16% range. Last year, he struck out 20% of the time. Still hits the ball on the ground a little bit too much for me to believe that we're going to get more than like a high teens home run total from him. Ruvain, you go next. Um, I think with Verdugo, it's a lot has to do with his injury and his injury history. He had an issue with his back last year. He's now a full year past that, which will help him. But just like uh, Clayton Kershaw, who had, black, who had a back issue and can flare up at any time, same thing with him. I'd be a little bit nervous with him. Yes, he'll score a lot of runs bat, batting ahead of Devers and Bogarts, but I'm a little nervous about everything else. Okay, so here's my take on him. I think that there is reason to like him because of his kind of profile and because the stats that he provides to you, which are uh, runs, which is a batting average, and steals. I think that um, you know something around 8, 10 steals is actually a, po- a very big positive these days. Um, he, there are, he is one of three players um, to have in Z-score speak – uh, a positive Z-score in both runs, RBIs, and stolen bases. That means that he's better than the average of the player pool that gets drafted in three categories. Only, uh, Sorry, I should say there's only three players after pick 60. All right, So we're talking after the first four rounds uh, of, of a 15-teamer. Only three players do that. Uh, one of them is, is uh, Verdugo. Can you guys name the other two? Any guesses? Mm. That just Segura? sounds like a Michael Brantley profile to me. Not Gene Brantley. Segura with steals, maybe? Gene Segura is somebody that ATC projects, and he's going and pick uh, 185. The other guy, Jose Altuve. 
still projected for you know, about 10 steals or so. Uh, it gets enough uh, uh, runs and batting average still. Um, but with my point here is that it's a profile that you don't see a lot. And again, as I said earlier, what's cheap late in the draft? It's the 25 to 30 homer, the big homer guys with a bad batting average. If you want to make use of the fact that there's plenty of guys later, you want to take a profile that's going to let you have options to do that. And Verdugo, for me, fits that profile. He's going to get you enough of the runs, which are hard to get later, um, enough of the steals that you know it's going to be a positive force, and the batting average is excellent. It's very excellent, actually. He's got he's almost two standard deviations projected above the average player. Um, you can take those big bopper homer guys later, more likely if you take an Alex Verdugo. It just opens you up more to the cheaper players. When I run drafts, I always keep a quantity of what are the best players that help diversify my my board. I want to be as balanced as possible. And I want players who show up as cheap and bargains. And the more you pick the categories that help out your profile, the better. And so that's why I like Alex Verdugo. And by the way, he's a $5 value according to ATC, a $5 bargain. Um, he's going in round nine. He's probably worth round seven production according to ATC. So you're getting a bargain player and somebody who's going to help your profile. And to be honest, even if he wasn't a bargain, even if he didn't have a jump in power and he stayed at 15 homers like ATC says, it still helps me with the roster construction. He's one of the guys that I prefer more in a draft and less in an auction because in an auction I can pop somebody else and there's somebody else of more value I want at that level. But in a draft, it helps me with the roster. So I, I like Verdugo for that reason. Any thoughts or I should say, Derek, any other comments about the outfield uh, player pool uh, up top and in the middle as we've been talking? Uh, nothing else. I do think as we went through that group in particular, though, like the Eddie Rosario price in drafts compared to the Nick Castellanos price is a really compelling reason not to draft Nick Castellanos. I think they are similar in terms of our categorical expectations. So I'd rather use that sixth round pick where you have to go to get Castellanos on something else. A closer, like you mentioned, that would be a great fit. Uh, a third starter maybe would be a possibility depending on who's there. So I'd keep that in mind if you're thinking about those players. Yeah, good points, Ruve. Yeah, this this player pool you can just like um, Verdugo. There are a lot of players in that seven to twelve range for the outfielders that have ten stolen bases. So you have to try to mix and match and and construct your team accordingly. Yeah, the one thing I'll say is that uh, in terms of replacement level, if you're in a five outfielder league. Uh, outfielder is the worst position. You, the, it gets the biggest bump in value. So if you had the choice between somebody with similar statistics who's a shortstop or an outfielder, uh, the outfielder does get the nudge because of the position. Uh, again, it's already baked into prices if you do it correctly with pricing, but just looking at the same statistics, uh, the outfielder should get a little bit of a bump because uh, it is a weaker position, at least according to my uh, statistics that I've calculated over here. All right. Well, uh, we've got one mailbag question for tonight. Uh, and Sharp asks, Yelly or Belly? <laughs> I guess that's Kristen Yelich or Cody Bellinger. What are your thoughts? So which one would you rather have? And they're going somewhat similar in the first round of the draft. Uh, who, who do you go for, Derek? Yeah, for me, the, the key difference is we have Bellinger still coming off of shoulder surgery. Yelich's injury at the end of 2019 should be a non-factor at this point. Uh, both are guys that I'm interested in at that one-two turn in snakes. They're 
two guys I like for auction purposes too. I think with Yelich, he hits the ball harder. That to me is, is one thing that separates him from Bellinger at this point. And I actually trust Yelich's speed a little bit more. I think both players are likely to give you at least a dozen bags, but probably more mid to high teens. I think the difference for me is I, I see Yelich having one more level still in that category. So another another good toss-up, but if I'm making a choice between the two, I'm taking Yelich. What about you, Ravane? I'm going to go Bellinger, even though he had the surgery. They're, right now, they're only saying he's swinging with one arm. I think they're doing it just to be safe. I think he probably, if he really had to, like let's say he had to play a World Series game, he'd probably be swinging full strength, and I don't think it'll be an issue when the season starts. But it may take some time for to build up this power, but I do think that Bellinger may end up with more stolen bases than Yelich because Yelich only stole four bases last year. It didn't look like he was so much into running, and I don't know how comfortable he's going to be with with running at this point. I mean, I'm not saying he's not going to steal because a lot of his value, a lot of Yelich's value is in his stolen bases. But if he drops a little, a little bit in his stolen bases and, and Bellinger stays at that stolen base level and just lowers the power, a, a drop, I, I want Bellinger. Uh, I'm undecided at this point. Uh, I think it's sort of a coin flip. Um, you know, when it comes to injuries, I trust you, Ruvain, so I'll probably take whatever answer. ATC says it's Yelich, by the way, by about a dollar, uh, but it's very close. Um, I don't know yet. I he, the, the, That answer, I think, has to do with spring training, and well, my drafts will have at least a week or two of spring training in there. I got to see how these guys go. Are, are, do, they, do they look healthy? Is Bellinger's shoulder okay? Is Yelich's knees okay? Um, I I think I, I want to see some action first before I, I give that decision. Um, it's a cop-out answer, I know. So I'll go with Ruvain's answer until I see otherwise in spring training. Uh, there is one other point I do want to make about the outfield that I do remember. Um, Marcelo Zuna, if you're drafting him in a league, okay, and he's eligible only at utility, you should not think about him as I he's going to clog my utility role. And do you know why? Because he plays in the National League. And the National League is likely not to have a DH, which means Marcelo Zuna will be playing in the outfield. So even though your draft software and whatever league might force you only to uh, pick him in the utility spot, when you're valuing him, you should value him as an outfielder because he's going to gain that eligibility really, really fast. And sure, he'll clog up your utility role for two weeks to start, but then you can pick anybody else in there and shift him to outfield. That's something that you just should know. There isn't that many players, by the way, that are, that are going to gain that eligibility because of the NL who would have otherwise qualified. Uh, Ruben and I were looking at it the other day. I think Colin Moran is the only big player of note um, who will gain eligibility at a position, even though in most formats won't be DH eligible. So... There you go. All right. Well, this is the end of—oh, I'm sorry. We have—sorry, uh, Ruvain's injury update. Uh, we've got a couple of guys uh, to go. Go for it, Ruvain. Yeah, first of all, I'm going to make a—I uh, have a list of com- some players coming off of sur- surgeries or injuries in the offseason, and the, they're all systems go. You have Miles Mikolas, who's all systems go, Steven Strasburg, Shohei Otani, who actually showed a decrease in velocity, which is a little bit discouraging right now, but so, so far he's good to go. Eduardo Rodriguez is good to go, and Matt Chapman's good to go. The Nelson Lamette, he's feeling good about um, the manager. Jace uh, Tingler is actually feeling very good about where Lamette is in his throwing program. He dealt with some elbow discomfort last year. He had a PRP injection, no surgery, so that's something to monitor. The Mets announced last week that 
Seth Lugo had surgery for a loose body in his right elbow. He was a candidate last year to steal some saves from Edwin Diaz. He's going to miss for about six weeks, so you'll probably see him back toward the end of May. And this just came out today that JT Realmuto has a small fracture in his right thumb. It will be immobilized for two weeks. The Phillies hope to be ready. Phillies hope he will be ready for opening day. Thumbs down on uh, Real Muto there. Does that hurt his value, by the way, at all? It shouldn't because, I mean, he's he's if he's going to be ready to opening day, it's not going to affect him at all. It may affect his power early on, but otherwise it, it shouldn't really affect him at all because he's still probably going to play the same amount of games. He's been pretty durable, and once that heals, it shouldn't be a problem. You drafting Real Muto, Derek? I haven't been, not because I don't like him, but this goes back to something you and I have talked about, I think, on Twitter at some point. Yeah, There are certain players in snake drafts, just where they go, it, it doesn't work, right? The, the draft capital it takes to get them doesn't line up with what I need to get from them value-wise, and the pieces just don't fit quite right. Uh, so I pass on Real Mudo in snakes. I could very well have him in auctions. I do worry... A catcher with a thumb injury, at least his right thumb, so it's not the hand that he catches with. You just you think the possibility of, of having setbacks with that would be pretty high at that position. It's it's his throwing hand that's injured, so hopefully it's not as bad. But it's also uh, the way he bats; it's his bottom hand as well. So that's something you know to watch for his power early on. But otherwise, through the course of the season, if if the if the MLB plays 162 games, his value should not be dinged that much based on this. Yeah, and catcher, as you said, catcher is a position where I think snake versus auction is so different um, in terms of the players that I'd like for each of them. Um, but we'll talk about that on our catcher episode coming up next week. Uh, anyways, fantastic show, uh, Derek. I-, I knew it would be, and, and it was. Uh, why don't you tell the audience uh, where everyone can hear you, can read your stuff, and what's going on, uh, all things Derek Van Riper. Sure. Yeah, you can read my stuff over at The Athletic. Uh, We've got our draft kit dropping next week, so that's not too far away. We'll have regular pieces. I'll have a regular piece almost every week, I think, starting next week through the end of the season. So a lot of writing coming up on the podcast front. Rates and Barrels, The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast, and Fantasy Baseball in 15. Uh, Three different shows that I'm on. Pretty much a podcast every day between all those shows. Actually, two podcasts every day with Fantasy Baseball and 15 being a, a quick hitter in the morning. So, yeah, check those out. And on Twitter, I'm at Derek Van Riper. I listen to all of those podcasts, uh, along with this one that you're on right now. Uh, they are fan- three fantastic podcasts there. Uh, I really highly recommend it. Of course, it's award-winning, so um, it's not just me talking. It's also the experts talking about that. Uh, and actually, two of those were, were nominated for an award. So you had uh, we talked about probability. You had a 40% chance right off the bat there, right? Yeah, 60% chance that uh, I still could have lost. So. That's true. <laughs> it was- That's true. It was, it was really nice to come away with it. Having having two finalists is, is a great honor, and it's uh, even better to get a win. Yeah, congratulations and very well-deserved. Uh, Ruvain, uh, how about you tell us about what you're doing? Well, first of all, I think you're uh, listening to this just to get your uh, leg up on the competition. I think you're just trying to figure out what their draft strategy is. But anyway... Um, you can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates throughout the course of the season, throughout the offseason, throughout spring training. I've just started up. You'll see a lot of stuff is going to be coming out soon. I'm going to be mentioning stuff about COVID. People, people already being placed on COVID lists, which is something to watch for. Um, you can also follow my weekly article, injury article, on Rotobowler. All right. And my name is Ariel Cohen. And you can read my work over at Fangraphs, at Sportsline, 
and at RotoBowler. You can find the ATC projections on all those sites and at RotoChamp. They've got some really cool draft software. I highly recommend you take a look at that. Um, and, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY, and you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast uh, presented by Fangraphs. All right. Once again, thanks so much to Derek Van Riper, DVR from The Athletic, for joining us on the show and from all of us here at Beat the Shift. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.